Welcome back to Pinpoint History, everyone. Episode 29, Like Father, Like Son. When last we were together, Alexander had just routed the Persians at the river Granicus. Alexander had forced a decisive battle once he had countered the Persian forces. The young king needed a victory under his belt, and fast, if the war effort was to continue. Macedonia was on the ticking clock. Eventually, the invasion would become too expensive to maintain. The victory at the Granicus would practically concede Asia Minor to Alexander. The Persian forces had to retreat and reconsolidate their forces. The Persian leadership at the battle had been called. Spithridates, one of the Persian satraps, was dead, killed by Clytus the Black, as the former almost killed Alexander. Mithridates, brother-in-law to Darius, the king of kings, was also dead. Arcites, the overall commander and leader of the Persian forces at the Granicus, survived the battle, but committed suicide shortly after to atone for the defeat. Memnon of Rhodes, who cautions not to fight the Macedonians, but to retreat and let the Macedonians run out of money, had survived and, in time, would lead a counteroffensive against the Macedonians. All of that to say that now, that the entire region of Asia Minor was now open to Alexander, and he would not have to worry about fighting another pitch battle at the time. In Asia Minor, the news of Alexander's victory at the Granicus spread quickly, prompting many local cities to submit to Alexander. In the aftermath of the battle, Alexander tended to his wounded and dead, his own dead and enemies alike treating the Persian nobles and Greek mercenaries with great respect. Alexander captured over 300 panoplies and had them dedicated to the Temple of Athena in Athens, which had suffered under the wrath of Xerxes back in 480 BC. He had inscribed amongst all of the panoplies, Alexander, son of Philip, and the Greeks, except Sparta, set up these spoils from the barbarians dwelling in Asia. Alexander was commemorating his victory in style and taking a shot at the Spartans while doing so. Then, Alexander promoted one of Parmenian's officers to satrap of the region and made a show of clemency, sparing the city of Zelea, which had held the war council the Persians headed before the battle. The victory at the Granicus began yielding the fruits of their success almost immediately. Cities began to declare for Alexander when it became clear that the Persians would not be back. Then, a large windfall came to Alexander. The city of Sardis, the old capital of the Lydian kingdom, and the city which had been burned down in the Ionian revolt which had put the Greek world and Persian empire on a collision course came bearing gifts. The garrison commander of Sardis and a group of the city's most important men came to the king and offered the surrender. And most importantly, they gave Alexander full access to the treasury of the city. This was another cash money moment in the course of our story so far. The first being when Phocas had destroyed the tablet inscriptions of theirs and Sparta's 1,000 talent fine. It would seem Alexander's war was beginning to feed itself. Most importantly, one of the largest cities on the Ionian coast, Ephesus, was among the initial cities to accept Alexander's rule. 
Alexander marched to Ephesus and arrived after three days, establishing himself in the city, and in the early days of being there, began to catch up on missed news and became updated on the happenings of the region. Alexander sent Parmenian and other generals with troops to establish official surrenders of cities that had offered their submission to him. The cities that had submitted would now be forced to have democratic institutions, and I say democratic very loosely. Alexander was playing political games here. Many of these cities that had now entered the Macedonian fold were of Greek origin, and so the democratic government is a way of Alexander saying, my rule here will be different than the Persians. We will allow you to govern yourselves. But that was not the case for every city. Oligarchies and sole person rule would be allowed as long as they swore obeisance to Alexander. On a practical level, Alexander was establishing pro-Macedonian governments to consolidate his power in the region, so that he would not have to worry about revolts as he went deeper into Persian territory. Alexander's soldiers are his greatest resource in this foreign land. The Persian Empire still had vast resources and territory to draw on to fight against Alexander, so he could not afford to leave large garrisons of soldiers behind. He would need the local population's support, and so it was crucial that he make alliances with the powerful people in the cities that accepted his rule. Basically, put people in power, make them understand that their power comes from you, and then allow them certain freedoms like maintaining local customs and traditions. People will act in their own self-interest, so ensure their interests align with yours. The irony in this is that the Persians operated in the same manner as Alexander was doing so. For the people living in this time, whether it was under Persian rule or Macedonian rule, it was all the same. You paid taxes to your overlord, and your local customs and traditions were allowed to continue. War throws all of that into flux, and the cities being fought over had to play the dangerous game of picking the right person, which meant which side had the best chance of winning. Currently, that was Alexander, and most importantly, he was able to impose himself by spear point if necessary. A fun story about Alexander comes to us during his time in Ephesus. Alexander was having a portrait of himself created by the famous Greek painter Apelles. It seems that while Alexander was sitting for the portrait, he had many things to say about artistic technique, even though he really didn't know much about it. Eventually, Apelles had a private word with the young king, telling him to stop being so vocal about his opinions, and that the junior assistants were laughing at the king's misguided opinions. It seems Apelles handled this sensitive issue well enough to avoid Alexander's wrath, and that the king continued to sit for the portrait. It seems that Alexander was not entirely taken with the first version of Apelles' portrait, which featured Alexander on Bucephalus. Then, Apelles modified the portrait and added Alexander wielding thunderbolts like he was Zeus. Alexander was a big fan of this version of the portrait and paid Apelles a staggering 20 talents and made him the only person who was allowed to paint Alexander's official portraits. It's just funny to me that as soon as Apelles added Thunderbolts to the portrait, 
Alexander was like, hell yeah, that's the one. Also, it further says meant to me that Alexander really did see himself as the son of Zeus, though that could just be confirmation bias on my part. Coming back to the narrative, Alexander's time in Ephesus wasn't just spent posing for portraits, lavishing money on reconstruction projects like the Temple of Artemis and other various civic monuments. Alexander was planning the next stage of the conquest. Like I said earlier, the defeat at the Granicus meant that the Persians had practically conceded Asia Minor to the Greeks. But Alexander still would have to take it. Even though resistance on a large scale from the Persians was halted for the time, they would be coming back. And so, Alexander prepared himself and the army to begin the next phase. The next target had been decided on. The city of Miletus, further south down the coast of the Aegean Sea, had initially submitted to Alexander, but then rescinded their submission when news arrived that a Persian fleet would be coming. Alexander also knew that a Persian fleet was on the way, and set out first with a large detachment of his army, and made his way to the city. Alexander arrived first, and was able to overrun the first set of walls in Miletus, but met resistance as he attempted to overrun the second set. Most importantly, Alexander's fleet arrived before the Persians, and so was able to hold the strategic positions like the approach to the harbor of Miletus and the neighboring island of Lade. More importantly, these positions meant that the Persian navy, which was larger than Alexander's, would not be able to use their overwhelming numbers against the Macedonians, negating their only advantage. In a twist of the usual dynamics, Parmenian advised risking a naval battle and offered to personally lead it, while Alexander declined the idea. Alexander's navy was smaller, and more importantly, the Macedonian advantage was on land. There was no point in risking a battle which could damage the hard-won reputation Alexander was building. The Persian fleet also did not attempt to risk battle. Coming into the narrow straits that the Macedonians occupied would be dangerous, and so a stare-off ensued between the naval forces. The commander of Miletus, probably realizing he had made the wrong choice, attempted to appease Alexander by declaring his city neutral, which then would be open to both the Greeks and Persians. At this point, Alexander was not inclined to settle for neutrality, or at any other point really. Eventually, the Macedonians were able to breach the walls and with a targeted offensive, overran the defenders and took the city. Greek defenders, who had probably heard about the slaughter of the Greek mercenaries at the Battle of the Granicus, began to hightail it out of the city, with 300 apparently getting into boats and sailing to another island. Alexander sent forces to storm the island and attack the heights the defenders held. The defenders sued for peace and were granted it. Alexander gave them peace and then allowed them to join his forces. In fact, after the initial breach, Alexander had settled his forces and pardoned the city, and magnanimously allowed them to live in peace under his rule. Alexander did not want to deal with the Persian navy at sea, so he decided to harass their landing spots. He sent Philotas, the son of Parmenian, 
with some infantry and cavalry to deal with them. Eventually, the Persian navy retreated deeper into sea until they reached the island of Samos. Then, news arrived to the fleet that Alexander's naval forces had gone inland to forage. So they sent five ships to check out if it was true. The Persian ships were noticed, however, and the Greeks put out ten ships to deal with them. The Persians, outnumbered, fled, except for one which had been captured. With the naval threat neutralized for now, Alexander sent majority of his fleet home, keeping 20 ships mainly as transports. Alexander was economizing. While Asia Minor was yielding more and more of its bounty, he still needed to cut costs. And while the Navy was present, he had to pay for their upkeep, their food, and of course, pay the sailors. Alexander knew to conquer the Persian Empire, he would have to conquer from the land, taking cities and holding enough territory inland so that even if the Persians held harbors in certain areas, they would not be able to go further inland. Alexander pushed further south along the coast, taking more cities until they reached the city of Halicarnassus, the birthplace of Herodotus. The city had been ruled by a man named Pixodorus, but it was now ruled by a man named Orontobates. If you remember a few episodes ago, when Philip had attempted to marry his son Aridaeus to a noble woman whose father was Pixodorus, Alexander, feeling slighted by his father, had attempted to offer himself to Pixodorus' daughter, which had caused the whole marriage alliance to implode in on itself. Well, it came back to bite Alexander in the butt, as Orontobates was the man who ended up marrying Pixodorus' daughter and became ruler after the man died. Not only would Orontobates resist with all his might, but Memnon of Rhodes was also in the city. Still, there was a silver lining. Pixodorus had been the youngest of five siblings. All four had ruled before him. His two elder brothers and sisters marrying to maintain power and rule. Pixodorus had an older sister named Ada, who had ruled with her brother Idraeus. After Idraeus died, Ada ruled alone for a few years before her younger brother Pixodorus seized power. Ada had managed to escape and hold out in a fortress until Alexander's arrival. Now, Ada asked Alexander to retake the city on her behalf, and in return, she would formally adopt Alexander, making him her heir after she died. This was some clever politicking on Ada's part. She would regain control of the city, and Alexander would have a person in power in the region who would ally themselves with Macedonia. Apparently, Alexander even referred to Ada as mother, and for Ada's part, she called him son and doted on him, giving him plenty of gifts and sending him treats. While this was all fine and dandy, the hard work of taking the city had to begin. And unlike the siege of Miletus, Halicarnassus proved a tougher nut to crack, and Alexander's forces had to settle in for a good old-fashioned siege. Siege equipment was brought down the coast in his transport ships. But, with Alexander's navy now disbanded, he could not prevent the Persian fleet from resupplying the city. Alexander was determined to breach his way into the city, resupply be damned. 
The siege ground on, and there was an attempt by the defenders to destroy the siege engines, which was unsuccessful. And on the Macedonian side, a few soldiers from Perdiccas's regiment got drunk one evening and began taunting the defenders. Eventually, the taunting turned into an assault on the walls, which was thwarted by the defenders. Nevertheless, the Macedonians persisted and forced the defenders into the inner citadels. The siege was working, but still needed more time. Alexander would continue the siege, but he would leave a large mercenary contingent behind to finish it. The normal campaign season for the year was over, but that did not mean Alexander was done just yet. The campaigning seasons typically were from spring to fall, with winter being a lull between war. This was not the way Philip had organized his army, and so, it would be the same for the sun. One thing Alexander did do before pressing on to continue overrunning Asia Minor was to send all the men who were recently married back home to Macedon. Alexander said it was so that they could begin to create the next generation of soldiers and gave his officers who went home instruction to raise more levies to bring with them when they returned. With that, Alexander set off from the coastline and continued deeper into Anatolia. Alexander divided his forces between himself and Parmenian. That we know for certain, but the army is probably further divided as large-scale resistance would be rare. In the early years of the Macedonian expansion, Philip had campaigned in the winter seasons. Now, Alexander, in one campaign season, would undertake an expansion the size of Philip's methodical and grinding conquests of Illyria and Thrace. Despite Alexander's conquests having plethora of sources, between 334 and early 333 BC, we don't have much in the way of what really happened. The only source that talks about what happens is Arian, and even then, he only focuses on Alexander. The details of Parmenian's ventures are not spoken about, but with the benefit of hindsight, we know he must have been successful. The army had its objectives and would set out to achieve them with moderate success. Though, with Parmenian, we don't know the degree of struggle it might have taken, or whether he struggled at all. For Alexander, here's what we know happened in the intervening months of late 334, early 333 BC. A city called Hyparna was taken by Alexander, making a deal with the mercenary forces who left the fortified citadel of the city. Moving on, Alexander defeated the Talmysians, crossed the Xanthus River, and captured the cities of Panara and Xanthus, most likely named after the river. Thirty more towns were captured on top of these two larger cities, and by the time this was completed, it was deep into the winter 333 BC. Alexander was picking and choosing his targets, taking larger towns and cities that looked easy to take, while ignoring smaller settlements that were unfriendly. A tribe known as the Marmares ambushed the Macedonian rearguard and stole some of the army's precious supply animals. Alexander was compelled to strike back at the force which had disrespected him, and so, he attacked their hilltop city, which took over two days, 
and, eventually, the fighting men of the Marmaris realizing they could not hold out against the Macedonians went full Kaiser Soze on their families, killing the women and children and burning their homes to the ground and escaping the Macedonian forces. Punitive attacks aside, Alexander typically stuck to the game plan, deciding to bypass the city of Cilium, which was heavily garrisoned and fortified and loyal to the Persians. Another city, named Sagalassus, had strong, high defensive positions and decided to form up against the Macedonian forces. Alexander led the infantry assault up the hill towards the city. The high ground was devastating Alexander's ranged forces. The commander of his arches and 20 archers lay dead on the hill. The infantry pressed on grimly and eventually reached the top of the hill. Like I've said before, and will keep saying, once the Macedonian forces were in a straight-up head-to-head battle, they made short work of their enemy. The men of Sagalassus fled, but the city was taken. Another city, named Kylene, was garrisoned by a mixture of Carian and Greek mercenaries. The offer to surrender to Alexander if no reinforcements would arrive within 60 days, which was just a fancy way of declaring surrender, but they wanted to maintain appearances. Alexander left some men to make sure the city kept up its bargain and moved on. Like I said earlier, Alexander was happy to leave local customs and leaders in charge, as long as they submitted to Alexander. A good example of this was the city of Phasilus, which sent a deputation to Alexander, offering him a gold crown as a sign of their submission. In return, Alexander assaulted a fortified stronghold of raiders, who had been attacking the outskirts of Phasilus and generally disrupting their trade with other cities. It was important to highlight the benefits of allying with Macedonia, so Alexander did what he could to influence cities to surrender to him without resistance. Of course, those who submitted themselves to the Macedonians were forced to help fund the war effort, with monetary assistance, or, as we'll see in a moment, supplies like food and clothing, and most importantly, horses. A city called Aspendis sent diplomats to Alexander, offering their submission, as long as they did not have to host a garrison in the city. Alexander was willing to accept this deal, provided they paid him 50 talents, and the horses that they typically offered to the Persians were given to the Macedonians instead. The diplomats brought the demands back to the city of Spendis, and the citizens were fired up, and they did not want to accede to Alexander's demands. They would fight instead of submit. But when news reached Alexander, he quickly mobilized his forces and marched his army at breakneck speeds to the city. Aspendus, seeing just how fast Alexander was pushing his men to reach the city, balked and surrendered again. Though this time, they would be forced to pay 100 talents, give Alexander the horses, and submit to a Macedonian representative in the area. The war was going swimmingly, and Alexander, in less than a year, had overrun the territory the size of Philip's conquests in Thrace and Illyria, like I mentioned before. While the flashy battles of Chaeronea and the river Granicus have a certain sex appeal, 
These smaller battles and military operations were the true flavor of Alexander's leadership style. And just like Philip, the meticulous preparations and command of every engagement, big or small, was handled by Alexander. It was good leadership. Alexander was following the footsteps of his father, albeit on a grander scale. Another fun story comes from the nephew of Aristotle, Callisthenes, who was with Alexander and was detailing the first history of Alexander's campaigns. Alexander and the army were marching on the coastline of a region known as Pamphylia. The wind was blowing the waves deeper towards the sea, making the coastline shallow enough to march through. Callisthenes would tell this tale as if a miracle occurred, and that even the waters of Asia submitted to Alexander. And if you're familiar with the story of Canute the Great, the Danish king of the North Sea Empire, he had commanded the waves to stop on authority of his kingship, but the waves did not listen to him as the waves listened to Alexander. It seems, however, that this was blown up by Callisthenes, and that Alexander himself did not believe it, for no mention of it is made in his personal correspondences. However, not everything was going as smoothly as a plot to kill Alexander was allegedly uncovered. The culprit was Alexander of Lincestis, whom, if you recall, was the son-in-law of Antipater. Alexander of Lincestis was one of the men in the room who had originally claimed Alexander as king. The Lincestin branch of nobles had been the rulers of Upper Macedonia before Philip had reunited the Upper and Lower Macedonian regions together. Alexander of Lincestis' brothers had been executed alongside the King Alexander's cousin Amenitus. It seems the deal between Alexander of Lincestis and Darius was that if he was able to kill King Alexander, Darius would pay Alexander of Lincestis 1,000 talents and back his claim to the throne of Macedonia. The truth of this alleged plot is murky, and we don't know the truth of the matter. It seems that no one in the army vouched for Alexander of Lincestis, and the man was left to languish in captivity for three years before his eventual execution. It is interesting that it took over three years before the execution, so we are unsure if Alexander was uncertain of the truth and only had him killed when evidence was provided that proved his guilt beyond measure, or if politics played a role in keeping the man alive. But I think that's an interesting point for us to leave it on this week. I know it's been a few months since I've last released an episode, but I'm back now and reinvigorated and ready to continue with Alexander's journey. I have maps on Instagram, so you can see that at pinpoint underscore history, and you can email me at thepinpointhistory at gmail.com with any questions you may have. I will definitely see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, let's get it. <laughs>